I could not nobody pray. Lord, I could not nobody pray. When I went way down yonder by myself, and I could not nobody pray. Say, oh Lord. Upon entering your church, the devil don't always appear out of place. Remember, he was once an angel and still remembers how to sing, how to hold the harmony of a Charleston day in his cheek like a dirty tobacco, how to ride a hymn of rage through two hours of traffic, only to cloak himself sheep familiar and enter our fellowship hall. We welcomed him like the saints we didn't know we were becoming. Sat him close as kin, wanted him to feel this Jesus all over him. Felt a shiver in the room, thought it the Holy Ghost. Didn't know it was fear and skin and gun. We sat a semi-automatic away. Our palms held, clenched tight together. We slayed in unison. Didn't know there was a fury a-coming. Didn't know repentance had a skin color. Sanctuaries weren't made for shootings. Bibles weren't made to catch bullets. He held my hand in prayer as if we had the same father. Looked me square in my flesh and couldn't bear the black forgiveness. Who knew Wednesday nights were made for weeping? No joy to come within our mourning. The shots, like all our organ strings, breaking at once the shots, like a fleeting exodus of guardians wings we screamed no amen in tremble no duck and pray in chaos our bodies slain in the wrong spirit waiting for a savior to show up in survival I thought I thought if I paint myself in the blood he'd confuse me for Passover I held my first man's cool in hand life leaving him fast as hallelujah God our father don't let him see us make us a marsh of mangled messengers settle our spirits amongst the sinking stillness let us be Daniel in a den of death and close his eyes to us with each inching step. I tried not to cringe, tried to control my blinks, my breath psalms pouring from my palms as he paused, a thief in the night, looking for one more colored soul to leave cold boarded on this here chapel floor. Wait. It must have been an uneasy conviction pushing him out, turned, God's eyes watching as he ran from his grace, breathe. The floorboards quieted their hundred-year-old mouths. The hum of AC and fleeting souls faded into a muffled corpse of silence. And I couldn't have nobody praying. Lord, I couldn't have. Nobody. Come on. Hello and welcome to The Sacred Speaks. I'm your host, John Price. What you heard earlier is a cut from today's participant, Deborah Mouton. It's her performance piece called Mother Emmanuel, and you can get that on our website at livelifedeep.com. 
I'll introduce you to her first and then get to a couple of, uh, of notes and then we'll get started. Again, if you're looking for Deborah Mouton, check her out at Live Life Deep, L-I-V-E-L-I-F-E-D-E-E-P.com. Tons of information on her site. Deborah Deep Mouton is an internationally known poet, singer, actress, photographer, wife, mother, and the first black poet laureate for the city of Houston. Heralded as a literary genius by Congresswoman Sheila Jackson Lee, this California native was formerly ranked the number two best female poet in the world. Deep has established herself as a notable force in the performance and literary world. She published her first collection of poetry at the tender age of 19, and from there she went on to compete at the CUPSI as a member of the 2004 University of Michigan Slam team while simultaneously touring with the World Works poetry troupe across the Midwest. After falling in love with the national poetry scene, she moved to Houston and became a member of the 2007 Poetry Slam team. After this experience, she and a few friends set out to establish a new voice for the city of Houston, forming the H-Town Slam team, which now operates as the Houston VIP Slam team. Deep was a three-time Slam champ and an eight-year coach and Slam master of Houston VIP. In 2011, she coached the team to the National Group Peace Finals, where they were ranked sixth in the nation. In 2012, under her coaching, VIP moved on to be ranked fourth in the Southwest at the Southwest Shootout Regional Slam. And by 2014, the team were semifinalists at the National Poetry Slam in Oakland, California. In 2009, she released her first full-length album, The Unfinished Work of a Genius, is what it's called. It's a collection of original songs and poems that explore the ideas around spirituality and personal growth. Her sophomore album, Beautiful Rebellion, is available now. It, it explores more socially-themed poems. She'd been featured on BBC, NPR, Upworthy, Blavity, TEDx, and Button Poetry, right about now in the opening video of the 2017-18 Houston Rockets season. Her collection with the Houston Ballet celebrated Houston's resilience and provided hope for the city after Hurricane Harvey. She shared the stage with the likes of Nikki Giovanni, Talib Kweli, MC Light, Amiri Baraka, John Legend, Slick Rick, Slum Village, Karen Clark Shield, Raheem Devon, Trey the Truth, Devin the Dude, Deaf poet Suni Patterson, Deaf comedy jams Rodman, Reggie Gibson, Buddy Wakefield, Denez Smith, Roxanne Gay, and multiple local and national political figures. Uh, so check out the bio. I do want to get to this one part. Um, she, she, as poet laureate, she worked to shift the culture and literary landscape of the city of Houston. She developed a workshop series, readings, and directed an, a video and audio tour of the city of Houston through the work of 38 writers, including her own. She pushed literacy and the inclusion of performance poetry as a valid art form through the local and international channels. Her work has been sp- studied in England. Germany, New Zealand, Canada, and across America. <clears throat> Her newest collection, Newsworthy, examines incidents with police brutality and the black body and how the media chooses to report them. Her up-and-coming projects include an opera, Marianne Song, in collaboration with the Houston Grand Opera, and a regional tour as part of the Texas Commission on the Arts touring roster. She currently serves as the senior editor of Relationships for Raising Mothers magazine. Information on her is all over this website. Again, check it out. And she's awesome. So there's Deep, and I'll get to the conversation in a second. The other thing I want to bring up is the music. So the theme song for the podcast is from 
Modern Nations. Check them out at modernnationsmusic.com. Uh, I'm, there's exciting news for me. Rodney Waters and I are going to be recording an album in February, hopefully, of next year. We're going to start a Kickstarter campaign, and I'll let you know more about that. The reason why that's up in my mind is that Count, one of the fellows that's going to be producing and mixing the album, he just collaborated with DJ Shadow on a, a song called Rocket Fuel. And look at DJ Shadow's site, djshadow.com. You'll see the new release. It's, uh, it's Rocket Fuel featuring De La Soul. And it's going to be the song at the end of this conversation, and I'm stoked about that. It's fantastic, and I'm eager to hear the rest of DJ Shadow's album. Count has been working on a ton of great music, including the newest Tycho release. And uh, so we're in conversation about collaborating with uh, a number of other guys, um, including Nolan and Toby, who are the producers and writers of Modern Nations, uh, along with Taylor Tatch outside of Austin and Todd Pipes. So we'll be doing that. I'll let you know more about a Kickstarter campaign that'll start hopefully in about two weeks. And because we've got so far about 12 songs written and uh, looking to do a few more. Okay, what else? Yeah, this this podcast, if you're looking for more information on the podcast, check out thesacredspeaks.com. There's a bunch of information and videos on, uh, on that site. Uh, but for now, I think that's it. I think I want to stop there. So... Uh, yeah, did that, did that. Yeah, let's call it there. Thanks for joining us, and uh, I'm eager to bring you the conversation. We'll leave it there. I, again, I read this book. I, I've been moved by you on you know, at least two occasions thus far, and I, I'm curious what what creates that in you? And so where does all this begin as far as being a poet? Where does that start for you? That's a great question. People often ask me when I started writing and I don't remember a time when I didn't write. Hmm. You know, my mom says she has poems when I was like four or five years old that are like, the cat went, you know, like they're just really terrible. I don't even want to repeat them, they're bad. (laughs) Um, When I think when I was cognizant of the fact that I was creating work, was probably like eighth grade, but it was all stories. There was no poems in my life, I think at that point. Um, by like high school, early high school, there was like spiral journals of really terrible poems. And then by my junior year of high school, I remember reading A Midsummer Night's Dream mm-hmm. in my English class. And my English teacher was like, I want you to write a poem from one of the characters to another character. Like I remember this assignment specifically and I did it, this persona poem. And she's just like, she didn't even understand. She was just like, I don't get how you're so good at this. And I was like, yeah, okay. I wrote a poem. Like give me an A cause that's the thing I want. And we'll just keep this thing moving. You know, like it wasn't about <laughs> being a writer, you know? Um, and of course I got an A, but she was like, you're so much more than this. You know, you're a really amazing writer. And I was like, okay, yeah, whatever, right? Like, I'm I'm not a writer. And so she started to submit my work for me. She started to, she nominated me for Who's Who. She, um, and I ended up, you know, being part of Who's Who and um, a National Merit Award winner in English and things like that, that she could kind of push out as much as she could, you know, without being intrusive. And then she introduced me to Poetry Slam. And um, 
I really kind of thought it was cheesy. I was like, I don't want to do this. But she said extra credit and trophies. And at the time, you know, that was a motivator. So I tried to do it and I won. I won a trophy and I think I won a little bit of money. And I was like, oh, snap, I could win money and trophies. Like I'm not the athletic kid, so trophies don't come easy. Um, And so I kept doing it. And then I think before long, it just started to really, by college, I was angry when I lost the slam, but not angry at not winning the prize, angry that people didn't realize how amazing I was because I was cocky, right? So I was at the point of saying like, no, there's a value to my work that you don't see or understand. And I'm angry that you don't understand it. And then that turned into, well, then if you don't understand it, what am I not doing to communicate it well enough? Mm-hmm. And then that turned into craft, right? Then then I started to refine the craft of writing and figure out how to say the things I wanted to say better and more effectively and how to make people feel the thing I wanted them to feel in that moment, you know? And then from there, it just kind of just blossomed into being, you know, a good over a decade of really pouring into the work. I mean, but at this point, it's probably been like 20 years of writing, you know? Um, just because I started so early, I'm not that old, but there's kind of this catalog of awful stuff and this catalog of somewhat successful stuff that I'm kind of proud of. What you? What's, what is Poetry Slam? Go into that. Yeah, so Poetry Slam, uh, we think of it, it's not its own genre. Performance poetry is kind of the genre. Slam is the competition you use performance poetry in. So it's basically taking a piece of work that's in a set time limit and then performing it and having it judged by the audience and the highest score kind of wins something. Usually it's money. It's never enough money, but it's usually some money. Um, sometimes it's a trophy. I won a tiara once. I won tickets to Disneyland once. That was like one of the best prizes ever. Um, so just being able to take the work and put it in a more immediate space that gets you kind of that immediate reaction where you know, a lot of poets write a book and then wait for the book to go out and then wait for people to review the book. And then and that's a long process versus here's three minutes of really impactful things. And immediately you tell me in a score how that impacted you. Mm-hmm. Right. And I feel it in the room. And like I see the faces in front of me taking in the work and all those things are much more immediate than and much more tapped into the audience and their their work and responsibility in interpreting the work than maybe traditional publishing is so at what point did you feel like a poet i'll tell you when i get there good okay yeah i think i'm still i feel like i'm still green you know i feel like i'm still learning Mm -hmm. i'm constantly applying for like conferences and workshops i don't have an mfa i don't plan on getting an mfa because it's expensive and i don't want to go into more debt i have a master's i don't need another one but for me I think being that forever student, um, I definitely think I'm a writer now. Because I've done it enough to say that I'm a writer now, right? You got that at least. Yeah, but I remember I was applying for something recently and they asked, oh, it was a doctor's office and it asked your profession. And I wrote writer, author, and I was like, huh. You know, like I had to kind of sit with it. I was like, I'm a writer. And this was maybe like two weeks ago. So I, I think I'm I'm always going to be wrestling with that. Yeah. Yeah. That identity is tough. I mean, because our, our, I, you know, I, I immediately go to that old scenario I'm sure we've all experienced, which is, no, you, you know, you're not this kind of artist or you're not that kind of singer or you're, you know, you don't do it right. You don't, you know, we're so concerned about 
packaging these artists in the particular ways that we all have this complex, I think, around our own creativity that oh, yeah. says, I'm not that. Well, I mean, also growing up in a culture and a community, you know, I don't I don't think black children are taught you could be a writer when you get older. Mm. Right. That's not that's not an option. Right? Like successful means doctor means lawyer, you know, means something with a lot of degrees and makes a lot of money. Um, rarely do we talk about being a thinker or being, you know, being a writer or an artist in that way. I think those are things that are fantasy and our parents try to ground us in things that are much more tangible and, and easier to understand the success of. I feel like being a successful writer could mean writing 20 books and none of them get any praise until you're dead and then suddenly you're wildly famous, right? Like, and that's a literal, that could be success for a writer. And that's sad, right? Like, and that's not a hopeful place to tell your children to live in. So I think they they try their hardest to try to ground us in tangible things. And and so that that kind of closes some doors on saying what you can and can't be. You know, my parents were very big. I remember my dad saying, if you want to weave underwater basket weaving, like if that's what you want to study, you better be the best underwater mm-hmm. basket weaver in the world, right? Like, I don't know what that is or what it does, but hey, you, if that's what you want to do, do it to your best. And so that freedom, I think for me, was different than what I hear in the students that I work with and their parents and their homes that say no success has to look this way, you know. Um, and Are it's you, you're hearing clear. that? Oh yeah. 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 I've actually had students who were children of artists that their parents told them you can't be an artist because it's not stable. And I was like, you literally make your whole career off of an artist. Be quiet. Like, what are you talking about? <laughs> You know, instead of that, why don't you show them how to make it stable? Like show them to get away from all the pitfalls and the stupid stuff you have to go through. Cut that out for them, you know, and teach them how to circumvent that. But I think that it's still a tricky thing in giving children the freedom to do whatever they do just at the highest level instead of feeling like it has to hit some marker of success that someone's predetermined somewhere. That's scary for people. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> the, the artist who is, uh, you know, don't live my life. That's wild. I mean, at some point in time, I had to throw out my 10-year plan. You know, I was the meticulous planner that had, like, at 25, I'm going to get married. And at 27, I'm going to, you know, like, and it was tick, 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 tick all the way out. And every every New Year's, I, my ritual was to sit down and write a goal list of all the things I wanted to accomplish in the next year. And I would put a date by them when I accomplished them during the year. I mean, like, it was... It was excessive. It was anal. It really was. Mm. And I found myself at the end of the year with maybe two or three things off the goal list, two or three things off the goal list that I had accomplished. And then this weird other list of things that were amazing that happened that got no praise because they weren't on the list of goals, right? That I kind of just pushed to the side and made more insignificant because they weren't the things I was shooting for. And I just was unhappy. I I don't understand why I'm so happy when things are moving and things are happening. And some things that were like in my five year, 10 year goals are now, but they weren't on this year's list. So I'm upset about them, you know? And I was just like, I'm just done. I'm done with all of that. I just threw it all away. You know, there's definitely things in my mind I would love to have, but there's no timeline on those things, you know? Um, And instead I just said, I wanted to give into the wave of my life, which for the last, you know, four or five years have been completely just, you know, people ask me what I want to do. And I'm like, I don't know. We'll figure it out. You know, and I said in a job interview recently, they asked me where was I going to be in five years? And I was like, I don't know. Stop asking me silly questions. I don't know the answer to that. 
you know, and I was like, and I know that's not the answer for a job interview. And I said this out loud. I was like, it's not a job interview answer, but it's the truth. And I'd rather be honest with you and say, I don't know where I'm going to be in five years. Like, do you know where you're going to be in five years? Probably not. <laughs> What's the idea of where you want to be? Yeah. yeah. But yeah, yeah, people, people, that's the same thread there. Like, that makes me insecure. Your ability to, your your inability to kind of commit yeah. brings up the insecurities about our plans and what we imagine together. And same thing as parents. Same Absolutely. thing as the artists who say, and wait a second, that's, that's challenging. The irony is that, I mean, good art really does challenge the ego and it, and, and, and yet we teach, and I get it, we need to learn the canon first and we need yeah. to learn how to, you know, we do need to learn how to color in between the lines, but not at the cost of somebody's own kind of developing identity around their creative self. Right. It sounds like that was just flowing through you from as early as it gets, three, four. You know, I don't, I think creativity was always flowing in me. I think I knew that I was going to have to express myself one way or another, but you know, I played classical piano for seven years. I danced. I ran a photography business for three years, you know, like, so I think I, I've been kind of all over the place as far as what I, which method I wanted to take. Everything creatively that I've tried has always come easy to me, which is almost its own kind of challenge because when everything comes easy, then it's really difficult to see which direction to run into. Yeah. And I think I had to learn like that there were seasons in my life where, you know, there were seasons where I literally just have books of songs that I've written, you know, cause I sing as well. And so there was just books of songs. And then there were seasons when I could just hear melodies and I knew it was piano. Right. And then there were seasons where I was just writing and vomiting writing. And then there were seasons where I couldn't write at all. And I was just what I call and tell people is living the life that will influence the writing. Cause I think that there's a season for that too, where you just need to live the life first right? mm -hmm. and that the writing then comes secondary. Um, and I think I still jostle between those things, you know, so, but I'm finding more and more that for each of the things that I spent time with now later as a much more polished artist and more balanced artist, there's space for all of them. Just maybe not in the ways that I expected, you know, so when we did the book release, we did it set to dance. Right. And so, because I spent some time in dance, I felt really comfortable with handing it over to dancers and knowing that that was going to be a part I wanted to include. Um, so, I, yeah, I just think I, I'm finding the balance now, but I haven't, I don't think I've wasted any time. I just, I don't think I understood why the time was spent the way it was when it was happening. So I wonder what that, that thing you're saying about it, things coming easy, because you got to have something to wrestle with, right? You got to yeah. push up against something. What'd you, what'd you find? I mean, if these words are flowing, if the, Obviously, you had something inside of yourself, piano, dance, mm -hmm. song, poetry, whatever that was that was getting expressed. And you've I'm assuming you found something that was uh, felt like a right lane, the correct, you know, whatever that means. And that's when things started to get tense, weird. I mean, how did you learn the craft is what you you said earlier, crafting. And I'm curious yeah. about learning the craft. Failure. I mean, I, honestly, yeah. you know, the rejections are still real. The slams that I failed at miserably were still, you know, real. The teams I missed making by point two, because I still remember that team, right? That <laughs> that hurts. Um, yeah. The being booed off stage, which definitely Ooh. happened. That one, that one really Shit. hurt. That one hurt in Chicago too. Like, oh. But tell me about that. What? Oof. Yeah. That one hurt. I bet. 
So um, I got on stage after a comedian and I just didn't read the room. You know, the room wanted to laugh. The room wanted to be happy. And I just had some really traumatic information given to me about a friend who was sexually assaulted. And I wanted to like, I wanted to process that through poems on stage. And I did the first poem and instantly was hisses and boos and like, no, this is not what we want. Um, and I remember kind of being lost between the space of this is the poem that I needed to say. Yeah. And it's not the poem you wanted to hear. And my set wasn't over. You know, that was that was poem one. So I still had 20 minutes behind me of trying to reclaim this crowd, you know, and it wasn't an easy thing. You know, did we did we get there? Sure. You know, at some point in time, we got through the set and people bought books. Not everyone, you know, but we, we got through it. But that those kind of moments, I think, absolutely shaped who I am. And and it made me much more honest about the things that I share, you know. So there's times where one, I'll just preface and say I need to share this poem. Two, there's times where I re I come into the room and often before performances, I'll kind of walk around, meet with people. I kind of get people's energy, right? Like I kind of feel mm -hmm. people out, I kind of feel the room and what it wants. Um, and even designing my set list, realizing that starting with something so personal maybe doesn't work all the time, right? Maybe maybe we need to, just like a relationship, get to know each other a little bit. And that personal piece comes a little later in the set where you feel more settled with me and you feel like you understand and you connect with me better. And so I think all those things as like the performer or maybe... I mean, I think writers still still do this too. It's just like in the order of the poems in the book, right? right? Like it's the same thing, but I think we have to let you in the same way we expect that a reader lets us in or an audience lets us in. And so finding that balance was really, really tricky. I also think I had a lot of life things that <laughs> were really difficult. And so whether or not I was creating or not, there's always that art life balance that I still don't know that I have right and life a lot of times swallowed me. You know, I've been homeless three times. Um, I moved to Houston with nothing and lived out of a hotel in my car for a month. You know, um, been robbed. I mean, like just all kinds of things that I feel like have really weighed heavily on my ability to create just because I was processing through the life. And so I think just because the expression comes easy, I think there's always gonna be something that challenges you. It just might not be the art. I know that was like a lot, right? I just like no. I mean, my yeah. I have those conversations a lot. When when things like that come up, I start thinking about maybe my own. I start getting you know considerate of you. Like, okay, where can I go here? Because I, I I guess the thread here that's really important to listen to is how what I guess what one thing I'm really interested in is how one's life experience influences how they imagine their creative self oh, yeah. and then you took it to that next step right there which is the performative component you know how we're how we do the dance with other people and you know you can only get that experience by performing right and i mean what a what an important story for you to kind of learn you know like i'll tell my son sometimes you know when he was younger i'd say like these jokes may work with that teacher but they don't work with the other teacher Correct. And so you got to kind of read the room so to yeah. speak and I mean, what a pain. And how many people would have done that and fled? Oh, yeah. You know, so there's something in you that's hanging in there that has some kind of higher calling that oh, will yeah. will endure the difficulties of that kind of inevitability and still proceed. 
Where did yeah. where did that drive come from? Probably my parents. Yeah. You know, my parents are pastors. I was raised in church. Um, and while I have conflicting experiences with organized religion in and of itself, uh, you know, I still find my faith in God. I still find my faith in Jesus. And I feel like those things are the ones that keep me a little bit more grounded in ways that maybe other people don't don't connect. I think a lot of times we look at, especially like Christianity as being this hope and this light and this beautiful thing. Mm -hmm. that's like, it keeps me uplifted. And for me, it was much more about a God that suffers with you, right? It was much more about saying that the suffering and the failure are equal parts important to the success, right? It's not, oh, God, let me go through some things. Oh, wait, here's back God, right? Like it doesn't work that way. It's God sat with me and struggled with me through the things. Um, kept me from falling apart when I thought that it was at my worst, right? Like, and then together we both got up, right? Like we, we both got up together and said, now, okay, we're a little stronger now. What's next? And so for me, I think that, you know, at a, at a young age, I remember losing our home at like 10 and having to bounce from these like really terrible homes, um, just trying to kind of find our footing. My dad was going into the ministry from retiring from another job you know, my brother was angry and, you know, there was a lot of just frustration in our household and we were not, I don't think anyone was their best self, you know, but we couldn't stop living, you know, like I still was on the honor roll every single, you know, semester. It was just, I was on the honor roll and had a permanent seat in the principal's office for my behavior, right? Like, like those two things don't knock each other out. And I think we always deal in this very black and white world where it's either or when most of the times it's and, right? And I think if you give yourself the space to be and and the grace to be and, then you can have conflicting truths live in the same space, right? I can believe that I'm going to be successful and be broke, right? Like I can have rats living in my walls and not know when I'm going to eat and still truly believe that this is like that I'm bigger than this. And that's that's a hard balance. A really hard balance. But when when you're sitting there with rats in your walls, what yeah. are you thinking though? Honestly, I thought it was hilarious. <laughs> I don't. I mean, I know that's not the right answer. You know, no, that's, that's a good that's a good interview answer. <laughs> you know, but it was it was my husband. Well, my soon to be husband. He wasn't. We weren't married then, but we had found this little spot. Both of us had been homeless. We found a little house in Acres Homes for like six hundred dollars a month. It had no AC, right? Like and no heat, right? Like one window unit that like it heated like two feet of air, right? Like it's just <laughs> miserable. Um, and I remember us. We, it was really hot, and we were laying on the floor at night because you know the floor is like the coolest place to be, right? It's like laying on the floor, and we hear this scratching in the walls, and we're like, "Oh my god, something's living with us!" <laughs> and I remember us thinking, we just can't open the cabinets. Just keep all the cabinets closed and we'll be okay. I don't know why we thought that that was like going to stop anything. And um, I used to keep like plastic bags under the sink, you know, to reuse, mm -hmm. you know, after. I'm, and for some reason, it was just an early morning. I completely forgot about the scratching. And I opened the cabinet to get the bag and all the bags just flew out and exploded at me because whatever it was, I startled it. <laughs> and I remember like jumping back he at the time like jumping over me and closing the cabinet and then us just like bursting into laughter right and be like oh my god oh my god the thing almost got out and at no point in time was i like angry about it or was i like uh, there was not a bad moment in that home even though it ended up having black mold and mushrooms going out of the walls i mean like it went bad it went really bad 
but we look on it and and laugh, right? You know, like we look on it and say, look how far we've come. I remember when we remember we like we were grocery shopping with twenty dollars in the ninety nine cent store, you know, because they had like produce, right? So we'd go to like the 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 ninety nine cent store and we would get like canned salmon, you know, canned mackerel and like some eggs and make salmon croquettes and like it was a whole meal, right? Like I remember going to restaurants and sharing plates because that's all we could afford, and we're like, hey. This $10 is going to feed us both, you know? And those things, you know, you could probably hear me smiling at them because I think they're what made us appreciate what we have now. You know, we built, literally, we built ourselves from nothing. And everything we hold together is together. Um, And there's something really beautiful about having someone start with you when you're at that nothing space and see you at your absolute worst and know that they're completely bought in there you know, so when everything gets easier, you don't worry as much because you know that at your worst, they loved you. And I think that though, like, that's how I think about even my relationship with God is like, at, at my worst, you laughed with me. You loved me. You stick, stuck with me. So then the the good stuff is easy, right? Like we, we can handle the good stuff because we handled that really bad stuff really well, you know? You did handle it well. Yeah. That- Again, a lot of people, a lot of people would have left getting booed and hissed on the stage. A lot of people would have left the rats in the exploding <laughs> plastic trash. They, they should have left the rats in the exploding trash. <laughs> Everyone should have left that. No. Yeah. Did Did you name it? The rat. The no, thing? it I wasn't. Didn't. A, you didn't. <laughs> we We hypothesized if it was a possum, rats, raccoons. Mm-hmm. Eventually, the the landlord sealed the ceiling. So the rats were stuck inside in the summertime and they died in the walls. And so like the whole house just reeked of like animal for like a month. That was painful. <laughs> I was like, and, and no, with no AC. So it was just like just sitting oh, in the house. Yeah, like, ah. Yeah. Um, so that was bad. But I think we were more happy that it couldn't come out <laughs> that it was dead. Just in my nose. Oh, yeah. Nose. Oh, it was bad. It was really bad. And I don't know that we knew how bad it was and, you know, like really knew how bad it was until we were so far away from it. They were like, how do we live there? Yeah. That's crazy. Are you joking me? What were we doing? But it was what we needed then, right? Like then we needed a roof over our heads and we needed to be able to afford it. And like, it was okay. It was fine. We got through it. It was terrible, but we got through it. It was really terrible. It's uh, the the term "rosy retrospection" comes to mind. It's oh, kinda, yeah. You know, looking back, but it doesn't. It's uh, that that was, it sounds like y'all were laughing about it during the time. So oh, it's yeah. not just this like, ah, uh, remember those were the days. No, we used to invite people over and be like, "Hey, if you guys want to sweat it out with us, you come to the house." <laughs> you know, like we'll cook and open all the windows and we'll we'll make it work. You know. So I have I had a fantasy as I'm listening to you talk. Um, you've been doing this performative poetry for a long time. Yeah. And uh, if if there's any at any point as we're talking, I, I'd love to invite you to share something. Yeah. That may be from this particular time. Yeah. Oh, I gotta see if I can remember. Do that. you have anything that? So I have a poem um, about when we were robbed. That was pretty bad. I don't know if I remember it, but I can try. Try. Yeah. Let's let's see. Uh, give me a minute to think about it. I have to remember the beginning. Take That's your time. The problem. 
That's how it works with me with songs. If I can remember the first line, usually I'm fine. Yeah. And it's, it's yeah. And that's when I memorize, I get caught. Because if I forget the transition word, then I'm like, it was that word. Like, I know I know where we're going. But I, that word, I need that word. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't remember it. Well, every now and then throughout our conversations, if you if something comes to mind, awesome. Let's let's go. Yes, because I was like, I don't know where that poem is. Yeah, and then if I may periodically say, is there by any chance something around? Yeah, I don't. I know it's kind of a thing where I've now started to go back and write. So my next collection is kind of talking about black womanhood mm. with the eyes of like when we're visible and when we're invisible, and it kind of came to be around looking at these stories that my mother and my grandmother were telling me about people who I never met in my family, you know, like these crazy characters that I was like, how come I never met that aunt, you know? And so a lot of that has made me kind of start going back and cataloging these experiences that I, they were definitely like building blocks in who I've become, mm. but for whatever reason, I didn't write about them. Right. So even like my husband, the way that he proposed to me, I thought was, pretty pretty amazing and I never wrote about it. And I was like, why didn't I ever write about that? I don't know why I didn't. And so I've started now like going back and digging them up. But so it'll probably the rat story will probably come. It'll it'll probably come. the rat story's gotta come. Yeah, the rat story will come. It'll come. It's <laughs> terrible. It'll come. Yeah, I mean the way that I you're the, what I've heard from you so far in, you know, what I've listened to you on the website, your website and read in the book, you have this just beautiful expressive language that put you there and so everybody knows about it. my first well we met a few times before the performance that we did together with the um, Houston Grand Opera and uh, Mauro Ferrari um, from episode 42 I just interviewed him <laughs> a couple of times ago but the setup was that you know while all these everybody crazy all the we crazies were on stage on stage you're writing from the moment people are walking into the um, into the theater and you're writing a poem that you would eventually perform, which, I mean, it can take me a month to get a song out. You know, like you did this thing in, a, in 45 minutes. <laughs> I thought, holy shit, yeah. that's incredible. And so I, I, I don't know where I'm going with that other than this setup, which is to watch you think through your, your, what, what you're doing and then to perform it and to listen to the language. But again, also the sing-songy component Mm -hmm. where you use your body you know the voice all that is um is gold and so you, you know as we go through our conversation today i'm going to try to nudge out these little moments of you, you know because i'd love to hear some stuff today yeah absolutely um thanks for the rat story yeah see your first person i've told that story with <laughs> like in any kind of recorded space so well, there it is well i'm glad it's just you and me here yeah you know, this is you? good <laughs> So, yeah, that's the, it's those kinds of moments. But so, do you think that, like, do you write from that place? I, my friend Justin, that I just interviewed, he's a songwriter. I re interviewed him a while ago, but I, I just released the the episode. Mm -hmm. he, he said Billy Collins was talking about writing cold, and and how, I don't know. He he was really moved by that, the idea of kind of practicing writing something cold. Just what do you see? The leaf on the tree, or yeah. you know, somebody walking down the street. Do you do that? Do you find yourself writing cold or do you write kind of hot? I think it depends. Mm -hmm. You know, so I I was actually writing yesterday um, as we kind of had this announcement that these raids from ICE would start, right? And um, I remember seeing this man walking down the street speaking in Spanish 
on speakerphone with, I guess, his wife. And they were talking, I mean, fluent Spanish. And I remember just thinking of like how threatening that is, right? Like that, like literally like tomorrow, you won't be able to do that, right? Like like the, there was this time frame that says, this is beautiful and freeing now, but it is the same thing that'll be the threat tomorrow. And I started writing, right? And I was just like, I want I want a, that moment in a poem because it's it's brief enough and it's succinct enough that I feel like it's not a story, it's a poem, right? Like it, fit, it fits that way. And I, so I just started writing. So th- those kind of things definitely happen. There's also, you know, with more commissioned work, I just have to write. Like, and that's, there's not really right. a choice for that. You write the poem, right? And then there's the stuff that takes me years to write, where I have a file called Great Lines for Non-Existent Poems, right? And I'm like, ooh, that's hot. Ooh, I like that, <laughs> right? And I have no idea where it lives or what it's talking about, but mm-hmm. the language of it sounds beautiful. So I'll just kind of like shove it into the file come back to it if I feel if I remember it later on so I think it's not one or the other I think it's all of them just at different times and different paces yeah well as you said that the two things I mean I know we I'm such a tangent person that I'll come back and move oh you're fine I am too so (laughs) so the 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 first thing you're talking about there's black womanhood and it the the other thing is uh something from your book where I think you were, you were thanking somebody. I, I don't know where it was. It may have been in your, you're awesome. Cause you read the thank yous. Wow. Oh, that's, that's good shit. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you thank somebody. I, it was either that. Yeah. It was activism. Somebody you were. Hannah Bonner. Yeah. Noting yeah. has kind of mentored you. And I noticed that early teacher from eighth grade was yeah. uh, certainly a valuable mentor that initiated you into a kind of saw something in you that you didn't necessarily see in yourself or even right. know existed. The, you know, activism seems to play a lot in your in your experience. But and I, you know, when you're talking about black womanhood and how that shows up in your life, it 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 brings up what I was feeling even this morning when I was thinking about how excited I was to talk to you, and how often you know the conversation around race or gender or anything that brings up a charge, people mm-hmm. say like, "Whoa, hang on." Right. You know, and and maybe it's somebody, uh, you know, some white guy who's saying like, can I can I say that? Can I talk about it? And most conversations I've ever had with anybody is like, let's talk about it. Mm-hmm. The issue is when we don't talk about it. Right. So, you know, I, that may be a, you know, we can kind of leverage that to go into your book, but yeah. or the black womanhood or how blackness has played a part in your life and certainly your creative life. Yeah. I know that's a lot, but. No, I mean, so it's, the funny part is that I didn't write about being black for like the first 10 years hmm. because I felt like everybody expected me. You know, I have an Afro, you know, I'm a hippie black woman. You just expect that I'm going to be angry and ranting at you. And I was like, I don't want that. I want human moments with you. And my human moments are shaped in blackness. And that's enough. Right? Like, I don't need to point out that I'm a black woman because the experiences will say that they're black. Right. And they did for a long time. Um, and then I got to the death of Trayvon Martin and I wrote the piece Open Season that's in the book. Yeah. Um, and it was a performance piece first, which is actually a longer performance piece than that. And um, I remember just thinking like, I can't not say anything anymore. Right, like I have to say something. Mm-hmm. We all have to say something or this is not gonna ever change. And so then it was kind of like an unbottling, right? Because then all the things I think that I wanted to process started to come out. And more than that, the things that I edited out because they were too 
they identify too heavily with specific things of blackness mm. um, because I wanted them to be more universal themes, right? So those things all started coming back in, right? So the first piece in the book talks about like little Sally Walker and like eating Kool-Aid out of a Ziploc bag, right? Like mm-hmm. at a really young age. And I'm sure that people who are not black also did those things. But I remember it's something about like being young and black that was this very like red fingers and red mouths running down the street playing four square, you know, just loud as you could be because no one said you couldn't be that loud, right? Like, and that for me, I wanted to capture from the very beginning. And I wanted to talk about like how that transitions to silence at the end, you know, like the differences when we're restrained and when we're free and when all those layers I wanted there. And I think the same thing happens when I start talking about black womanhood, you know, I had to sit down and look and say, make a list for myself that was like, these are, these are great stories. These are great stories that reminded me what it's like to be a black woman and be really clear about the, the, the line between the two. Like there's some stories that are just great stories, right? Like the rat story, just a solid story, right? It's a winner. <laughs> uh, also, did it teach me about myself as a black woman? I don't know that it does as much, right? But there are definitely stories in the book that's coming um, it's actually, it's not even a poetry book. It's a creative nonfiction, like hybrid book. Cause you know, labels. Uh, and uh, there are stories that I wanted to put in. I wanted to put in myths, right? Like, and, and not like old myths, like myths I was creating, like the things I believed in as a child and like explaining where those came from. Because I feel like we, why can't I do that? Right? Like I, I wanted all these layers in there that I think are the things that shape who I am as a mom, as a, as a teacher, as just a woman walking down the street. I wanted those layers and levels. And so it's been a thing where like, I I literally have made a list and like, as I've written been like, Hmm, I don't know that story lives here. A story should live. I don't know that it should live here. And the same thing I think happened with newsworthy, which is just being really honest about the arc of what I wanted to say, the order I wanted to say it in. Mm -hmm. What did you need to know? before you needed to know the next thing, right? So there's one piece that's out of chronological order. And it's because I needed you to see me first in one instance before you saw me in the next. And so I moved the the time frame, which is, um, I don't even know the name of it, the time we did something. It's when I'm, I'm in the street with the officer. I moved it time frame after when my daughter and I got almost run off the road by the Waller County Police. And, um, because I needed you to see me as a concerned mother before you saw me as an irate black woman, right? And that was intentional. And so I think one, one of my fears around, around this book specifically, and I think all my work now is has been, how does a predominantly white literary world engage in these books that challenge you, right? And that don't give you the grace of walking away from them. And I think they're still figuring that answer out. You know, I talked to Nikki Giovanni about it. I opened for her last year and I asked her, like, how do you write these books that are so, so black, right? Like, so unapologetically everything you are and still expect a, a community that, you know, the the literary white world is where people, you know, have their publishing for the most part. And I was like, how do you, ex- how do you expect them to to like handle it and to accept it? And her answer was, people who want to read your work will read your work. And people who don't will put it down. Like, mm-hmm. and just that simple, you don't need to think about that. And that was very freeing to me because it gave me the ability to just say, no, I'm just going to write the thing 
And how you deal with it when you read it is how you deal with it. And that's not my responsibility, right? My responsibility is to make sure that the work says what it should say authentically, honestly, and make you feel something. And if I've done those three things, then I've done my job on my end, you know? Which I think is a different space than maybe the performance is. And I'm learning that balance. I'm sorry, I'm rambling. No, no. I, I, <laughs> to me, that's one of the most important things that anybody, but certainly artists can hear because there's such that, we were talking again about ego, such so that ego piece where, where does this fit? Mm-hmm. What, what would it be liked? Uh, is there somebody else doing mm-hmm. the same thing? You know, what's going, all that stuff that comes out. And at the end of the day, the, you know, we got to see that stuff mm-hmm. as very human and understandable and then continue to operate Oh yeah. without, of course, noting that that comes up and there's some generativity in that energy and anxiety. Uh, and then I call it the bulldozer. Yeah. You know, we got to turn into a bulldozer. Yeah. Um, I was trying to find the, um, again, I'm going to be, because I, I like it so much when you speak. No, you're fine. <laughs> I, I'm trying to find the um, Trayvon Martin. Um, the uh, open season piece? Open season, that's what it so is. So the piece that's in the book is very different than the piece that I performed. It is? Yes. Wildly different. How so? If you'd like, I could just perform the piece. I would And then love you can make your own comparisons. Yes. Yeah. When the publisher came to me, they were like, the you know it's a three minute poem right like so it's yeah. a it's a significant length of poem and they were like we feel like the heart of what you want to say can be condensed for the page that leaves a lot more impact mm-hmm. whereas your performance kind of drags us through it in this really great way but it's not translating exactly the way we want it to yeah right and so the version that's in the book they were like what we suggest is put one version in the book and then perform a separate version Everywhere you go, right? Like, so people get the comparison, they get to do what they want. Right. But you give people two options of ingesting the work. So I was a huge supporter of that. That was fine. You know, mm-hmm. we, and I'm not gonna say I was on board from from the go, but I got there. <laughs> Did you do the right? whole like, don't, don't hold, you know, don't contain my creativity and all that stuff? Well, so I told myself with the manuscript that there were certain pieces I was gonna fight for mm-hmm. and other pieces that I was absolutely fine being like ripped apart. And that was just one of the pieces, right? Like that was that was like the trigger piece, which is actually the cover of the book is based off the poem. And so I was like, this one though, this one though, like just don't, not this one. And so uh, it took us, you know, it took us a week. We got there, we got there. <laughs> and they understood me and they listened and they were like, you know, we absolutely respect. If you say at the end of the day, I want the piece the way it is, we'll put the piece the way it is. Wow. But we feel like these avenues would close if you did that. So if you're cool with us not investigating like some of these awards and some of these other things, then with this piece specifically, then that's cool. We'll respect that, which I think shout out to Bloomsday. They're amazing for that. And also I was like trophies because so I'm still that person. I get it. Right? I'm still that person. I, I was thinking that. <laughs> I'm still going to be that person. So, you know, it was like talking about the visibility of the work and, and is it worth sacrificing something that I'm just emotionally attached to if it could still do the work in a smaller package, right? Sacrificing maybe my emotional attachments for what the longevity of the work could be, mm. I think is was the question for me. And I decided that it was worth the longevity. Right? That's wisdom and that's tough. Oh, it was hard. Yeah, well, that's tough. And I was sad about it and I yelled at my husband and I was like, they cut it, you know, like, and then I got over it because you get over it. Yeah. And his thing was, well, worst case, babe, you could publish it yourself in a self-published book later in its full version. What have you lost? And I was like, you know what? That's why I keep you around. You're smart. 
Okay, so here's the poem. I have felt the weather changing, seen the falling leaf painting the sidewalk and mosaic of autumn as a transplanted Texan. These hoof printed falls remind me of one thing and this year I heard, the government is opening hunting season early. Now every good hunter knows you need two things to be successful, a good dog and a good gun. Gotta have something to sniff and some way to shoot. It's important to get as close to your target as humanly possible. Make sure they can't see you clearly. This can be tricky. Hunting through the thicket and the cloak of night offer easy solutions now. There's no use in standing on top of an open hill, watching surrounding pastures and bushy banks if they're out of range. No. A better location is just inside the hood, I mean woods, so that if a boy, I mean buck, approaches, you can move back and stalk the cover. Now this can take years to perfect. I spotted one once, dark fur, oversized antlers, say the ones whose pelt sags just below their waist have the most tender innards. This one looked injured, dip when he walked, hand holding his privates like somebody already took a shot at him, looks under 35, that's good. Get him too old, they might've learned how to run, might've learned how to keep quiet and invisible. They say the most popular attractant is corn, but I've learned flashy jewelry, loud music do the trick. Want a guaranteed kill? Use some paper money. You can also purchase a call. One sounds like a mother's voice screaming out to Jesus. The other, the ringing of Sean's wedding bells. The last one sounds like a sweet young girl whispering, I love you. Anything that sounds familiar or offers false hope. Once you got them in your crosshairs, aim right under the hoodie, stand your ground, Invite a friend, tell him we don't shoot to eat, we hunt for the fun of the sport. Let's see how many rounds we could put in him for his knees to buckle, for his family to come looking for him. You know, the younger it is we catch him, the more likely it is we'll make the news. Picture us standing next to his 145 pound trophied body like the catch of a lifetime. We could be legends like Irwin v. Crocodile or, 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 or Fudd v. Duck or Police v. Every Black Body. It's human nature that the more dominant species assert themselves over the one who posed the greatest threat. And that's how we define a hero here in this thicket and this brush. They can try to camouflage themselves with nothing that young, that black, that male will ever fit in. I followed one once for 19 blocks. Let my canine sniff out his blackberry scent. Didn't have my shotgun, so I just shot till my gun was empty. I wore his skin like a Halloween costume. Say the darker the hide, the sweeter the blood. And this year I heard the government is waiving fees for permits. All you need is a rifle, a motive, a good hiding place. Try an alley next to a low performing high school. Don't have one. Use your own front yard. Plan a hedge. Stand in plain sight. Remember, if they come near you, it's only defending yourself. This is the circle of life. Somebody gotta be predator. Something, someone always gotta pray. So a little different in the book, but hopefully the same tones. Oh, I, yeah. Yeah. The, saying I love it is... Uh, I get it. Conflicted. <laughs> I get it. Yeah. It expresses something that needs to be expressed. Yeah. No tears. See, look, you've made it through. There were, there were little... <laughs> I had little droplets in there, though. They didn't... I got I got the thing. The, you the know? Yeah, I tried. I'm sorry. No, so your record still holds. Okay, I consider that a, yes. a yeah. three for three. I know. I'll take it. What's the response? Like, what, when you when you talk to people and you perform, yeah. like, what are you hearing from people as they? I mean, you obviously hear from me that I 
get teary, but what? Yeah. Um, I think it depends, you know, that piece specifically, uh, it's funny because in the first portion of the poem, lately it's been a lot of laughter, right? Until, even after I say hood would, people are still laughing until um, it kind of gets stalking them. Mm -hmm. And then suddenly the laughter shuts off, right? Which when I first started performing, I really had a hard time with silence and with laughter because I felt like people were making fun of the work and silence said that they weren't engaging in the work, right? And I had to learn that silence meant that they were probably the most engaged in the work, right? That they were thinking and they were reflecting and they were questioning and none of those things for them worked while audibly doing something else. Um, and laughter, I found that it's a couple of things. One is just relating to the work, um, awkwardness, right? When we're, we're uncomfortable, there tends to be a laughter about it because it's easier to laugh than it is to feel something else. Mm -hmm. um, or just general amusement by like the wordplay, which is also a thing that can happen, right? But it tends to be more of that. I don't know how to respond to this. And so it works its way out in laughter and giving people space to do that as a performer was a little difficult at first. Um, in general with my work, it tends to be that tears are a thing. That, and I've realized this, and a lot of people have said like, you made me cry. And I'm like, is that a good thing? And I always ask them like, is that good? Or is that, you know, and they're always like, oh no, it's, it's completely necessary. I needed, I needed to do, it. I didn't even know I needed to cry that way, mm -hmm. but I needed to. Um, I actually did a conference and it was predominantly women, but I centered my set more around um, kind of my rise to motherhood and the struggles that I had in that. And by the end of it, I mean, it was just like a sob fest, right? And women coming up to me and saying like, thank you for saying that because I couldn't say it. And I needed I needed someone to say it. Or I needed someone to say it for me. And you said it for me. And so thank you. And so I think it's humbling. Absolutely. Uh, it's also, I think I don't ever forget the responsibility I carry in being the voice for people who can't express things the way that I can so easily at times. You know, sometimes I think what people think is amazing. I'm like, that was really easy for me to write and I should have worked harder on that, you know? So I think being able to like honor the fact that I have this gift and that it is just that, right? Like a gift that can be taken away and that can, if not used, can disappear, you know? And so reception is always a difficult thing. I'm probably the worst compliment taker in the world, right? I'm always like, thank you so much. Did you see her dress? Like I'm always like, the, I divert, right? It's not because I don't, enjoy the compliment or I don't like respect. It. I just feel really awkward that that much attention is being paid to me. Right. Like, mm -hmm. like I want to be on stage. And then when I get off, I want to like go back to being like four feet tall and, you know, in someone's pocket where no one pays attention to me um, and sends me love notes. Like, like that's like my <laughs> ideal situation, love notes and disappearing. Um, so yeah, I would say that's probably like the very long answer to your question. There's a lot of receptions, uh, you know, and then there's typically there, there's, there are people who get angry. Mm -hmm. You know, when I was named Poet Laureate, I performed that poem and people walked out. And I had to be okay with that. White people? Oh, yeah. And and some non-white people, hmm. you know, but um, they there were people who just didn't talk to me for the whole night. And I was like, okay, if that's your space. You know, one of the things I said was, I'm as poet laureate, my job is to start really difficult conversations. Mm -hmm. And this is a conversation I find it the value in being uncomfortable, right? Is that it's gonna make you talk about it. And so I performed it in front of the chief of police 
and half of the police department, right? Like, and a lot of them walked out. And that was their prerogative to do so. Did you have conversations, though, with some of those folks? Did it open a discussion? Um, I had conversations. I don't know that it was with them. Not a dialogue, yeah. Yeah. I think the conversations turned into... It was really weird. Like, the room segregated. So immediately, a large group of people kind of faded to the back of the room. And then a large group of people rushed me, right? Mm -hmm. And most of the people who rushed me were Black, um, but were, like, activists in the community, organizers in the community, teachers, professors, you know, intellects that were like, when we came, we didn't really know what to expect, but like, we're so happy you have this position. There was also this really weird thing that happened where um, like almost every black council person would come up to me and put my hand in theirs and say, make us proud. And I had no idea what to do with that. Right. It was like this imparting of almost like a burden that like you now get to make the black race proud, which I was like, I don't know, no idea how to do that. And it was heavy and hard. That and heavy. But but I was like, you know what? I get it. I get it. I'm in this space and I have to I even if I don't want to stand as like a black woman, when you see me, you see me as a black woman in this space and. There's nothing I can do about that. Right. Like and so then I have to do a great job because I need to do a great job and I need to do a great job because there's never been a black person in this position before. And the first has to set the bar for what we can do and say we can handle it and validate our existence being in this space. And I'm the first performance poet to ever hold the space. So now it's saying you have to validate performance poetry as literary, right? And you have to validate a black woman in this literary space. And all of that's for like the fourth largest city in the world, right? Like, like we're, in the, we're in the nation. And so like those things, you know, it was a lot at first, but I think I did a good job, you know, um, from what I've been told, I, I worked really hard and I tried my hardest to make sure that there was connections with community and that we weren't ignoring really difficult decisions and we were willing to start some hard conversations if it meant getting to some great solutions. Yeah. I mean, that was my sense when I opened the book, I had no idea what I was getting into. Yeah. And all of a sudden it was like, okay, like that's where we're going. And yeah. It sent me down a rabbit hole where I was doing research. I was, you know, looking at black people that have been shot in the past decade and kind of recalling all these stories and all the protests and all the, you know, just this intensity. And mm -hmm. thankfully, I, I think it needs to be there because, again, these are conversations that need to happen. And I, the thing that is frustrating is a lot of times what happens is we see something in the media. That's our experience of it. We form some kind of judgment, approach or avoid, tends to be avoidance. Mm -hmm. And we never do the investigation of looking yeah. at the details. And then all of a sudden, all this energy is around. And, and you know, I felt like one of those people, you know, I certainly, and I, I, I do follow the news and I do mm -hmm. some investigation, but to sit there even this morning, really doing more of my research into these people, you know, mm -hmm. and, um, it was pretty appalling to know the kind of, you know, you mentioned ICE earlier, you, you know, mm -hmm. the things that are going on right now yeah. are appalling. Absolutely. And, um, and you're finding this way to, <laughs> I mean this lovingly, but make people uncomfortable enough to, to hopefully get them to go off on their own and do their own investigation yeah. kind of with their own perspectives. One other thing, and as being, being a black person, like we don't, we're not doing the research, right? We remember every name. 
We remember it when it happens and we carry it with us. Right. And it doesn't go away the way we don't have the option of avoidance. Right. Right. It's always there. And so at least until the next name is right. And so there was also this part of the book that says I wanted to catch all of these names while we still remember them. I want us not to move on to the next person and forget. I want us to not move on to the next other that we're going to attack in our community and forget, you know, um, I think right now, you know, we've moved on to immigration. So for a minute, you know, we stopped putting the eye on atrocities against the black body. And I'm not saying that immigration is not worth looking at because absolutely it is in every way. Also though, it's not a thing where we look at one issue or another. Mm -hmm. We have to look at all the issues. And I think that that becomes overwhelming in a way that I can say, you know, I'm an empath. So I have spent the last week not being able to sleep at the thought of people raiding people's homes and snatching them out of their homes. You know, and I'm not an immigrant, and but I have friends and family and general community around me that's affected by it. And the idea of it has been like bone chilling, right? And that doesn't make my experience less important. It just makes both experiences worth looking at and investigating and finding a better solution than the foolishness that we're doing right now because this is stupid, right? Like, and I like go on full record of saying that this is not the way that we human. And um, we have to figure out a better way. It's just like, it just has to be a better way than putting children in cages. That just, that can't be the answer. It just can't be the answer. No, it's not the, I mean, yeah. I, I'm just stunned about all that. That's when you start doing research, you get out of your own, okay, this is how I'm making money. This is what I'm doing for my job. This is what's going on with my family, you know? when we can clear that path and say, what is happening with the community? What's happening with other communities? Mm -hmm. what, how, how have I, what kind of lines have I put between, you know, I, thou, and how, do I, how have I made myself comfortable by not having to kind of feel the weight of yeah. uh, that? Because it's enormous. So, so th this is kind of there. Something about what you were talking about being a black woman and kind of looking at the blank spots through your narrative. The, a, a conversation I had with Juanita Rasmus came up because she she mentioned something about her struggle to, to not be another angry, angry black woman. Mm -hmm. So, and I really felt for her because I, I was like, how do you, how do you, how do you be an angry person mm -hmm. and feel conflicted about expressing your anger? Cause then you're going to become an angry black person. Yes. And that hit me. And then here you say it again. And I think, holy shit, like what, what is happening with that kind of oppression and how do you, how mm -hmm. do you manage it? So as you're reflecting on these narratives, uh, certainly your own black woman identity, um, what can you say about that as you start to recollect the things that may have been? Um, you know, it's messed up. I mean, what do you want me to say? Right? Like, I think, you know, I was having a conversation with a student recently and it was a black female student and a Latina student. And um, they both got in trouble with the principal. And I was like, hey, black student, you are not allowed to be angry in this space. I love you enough to tell you this, right? Like when you go in there, you need to be calm. You need to be clear. You need to be concise. And your anger needs to live somewhere else. And is that fair? No, not at all. I'm not saying that that's a, a great expectation of you, but I'm telling you how to get out of the situation. And how to get out of getting out of the situation means that you are clear, concise, you write things down, right? Like you make notes to yourself, you you are make sure that 
everyone understands what you're saying without your emotions. And then you can come to my room, you could blow up, you could throw stuff, right? Like we could talk about it, you could scream, cuss, yell, all of it, but you can't do it in that space. And the Latina student was like, okay, so, but, but I, and I was like, oh, you don't have to worry about that. Right, like not trying to be mean, but like you are, you are more than allowed to be emotional, but she cannot be. And I want you to be really clear and no, it's not okay, right? And I simultaneously saying that, you know, to a student who calls me mom, she completely got what I was saying. And she was like, yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am, I get it. And my heart broke, right? Because I was like, why do I have to tell you this? Why do you have to approach this this way? You should be able to go in there and yell and embrace high hell if that's what you need to do to get out your point. But I know that if you do that at this point, you're going to get expelled, right? Like that's it. There is no grace for you. And so having a daughter, you know, I know that that's a conversation that I'm going to have to have with her and I don't like it and I don't think it's fair, but my daughter needs to come home at the end of the day. I get it that you're, you are stating this, but I find the question is, so explain that. Yeah. Explain that for people who have no context around, I mean, you know, I just imagine so many folks who can say, oh, that's just bullshit. Like, okay. Uh, you know, <laughs> okay. the, the, like, yeah. but it's not, no, it's, it's a deep reality that, that really needs to be talked about. And Absolutely. so, so yeah, explain, well, explain you know, that piece. If Google adultification of black women. I think that's a great place to start, you know, and looking at the fact that, even at a very low level, there's an assumption that black girls grow up faster than everyone else. And that because of that, their maturity has to be a certain level higher than everyone else, right? And so we find that in schools, they're disciplined heavier. Um, they're, uh, you know, typically the, the sentences for their discipline are usually harsher. Mm. Uh, they're dealt with in classes much more aggressively than other students are. All those things at a young age already tell you that there's a problem. And then I think as, a, as you get older, you know, I worked for an organization where I remember having to take um, a friend of mine who was a male outside before our staff meetings and tell him the things I wanted to present. He would present them and they would be approved because when I presented them, they were shut down. And there was no difference in the things that were presented. I mean, we literally, I presented something one month and then waited a month and had him present the exact same thing. And it was wild. It was like revolutionary when he did it. And I was like, cool, great, you know? Um, in instances with me growing up, you know, there was times where I tried to express how I felt. I remember even working recently with a, like a teacher leader and I started to, my voice started to raise because I was passionate about what I was talking about. You know, I wasn't, wasn't mad. I was just like, what I want you to understand, you know? And he was like, you know, I think we need to take a break from this conversation. I see that we're getting heated and I want us to just walk away and take a moment to calm down. And I was like, I don't want to calm down. Right. Like, I, like, I'm not mad. One. And two, like, I don't need a little time out. Like, I want to feel everything that I feel. And I want you to understand why I'm passionate about it. Let me explain myself. Don't shut me down and put me in a little corner like a five year old. And um, I said that to him. He's like, well, that's not what I meant. You know, I really think we should just walk away and just take some air. And I was like, OK, walk away if that's what you need to. When you come back, I'm going to be the same person I am. <laughs> you know, right now, you're going to still have to deal with me. And um, and so I think like when that's how you're constantly perceived, when every time you bring up something or every time you want to propose something, it's always questioned or extra layers have to be put on for you and extra qualifications. You know, you really need to explain this or we're not quite ready for this conversation. We want to delay it out. And when that is the constant for you as a woman and as a black woman, 
I feel like you get into a rhythm where you do what you need to do. You pick your battles. Um, you fight for the things that you feel like are absolutely necessary. And you let a lot of shit slide. Because if you don't, you'll never get to the important things. Right? If you're angry about everything, no one will hear you about anything. And that's not fair, but it is what it is. And so I think, you know, as a black woman, even my mom, you know, would constantly like, hey, you can't be angry about this one. You know, and that's that's the box we're given. You have to decide what are you going to be so angry about that you let people see it? And what are the things that you're not going to be happy about, but you're going to play the game to get the thing that you really need done done? Well, thank you. That's a hell of an explanation. Yeah, I mean, I hope it answers your question. It does. Yeah. Uh, it it's a lot of blindness. I thought about unconscious bias, you know, in your first thing about mm -hmm. them, you know, him presenting it, you presenting it, and you know, the unconscious means it's unconscious. Mm -hmm. And so, all the people out there, I'm not presuming any of the listeners here think this, but a lot of people do when they say, "Well, I don't. That doesn't exist." Well, it's unconscious. Yeah. And we got to define that first, and we've all got to rec recognize on some level that there there are many things of which we're unconscious and just simply owning that sets you up with a different attitude than saying no i got none of that when i honestly think for the majority of those instances all of those are very good-hearted people yeah right they're not malicious people they're not intentionally racist like none of those things but i think in practice there are tendencies that tend to silence people and their tendencies that tend to exclude they may not even realize exist into unless someone says it right and then if someone says it then they're on the offensive because that's the last thing that they want to be because mm -hmm. they're good-hearted people mm -hmm. but that doesn't mean that right like it doesn't mean that they're not still doing the stuff right it just it just means that they're not happy about the fact that they're doing it well i relate with that and then yeah. you know that part of me that wants to believe i'm a good person yeah and as soon as that's challenged, it's, you know, there's that shock. It's like, wait a second. Uh, oh, shit, I do have to look at something there. That's happening all the time for, yeah. for people. Uh, it's a, a pretty evolved attitude. If you can do it in the moment, though, that's not easy. Do you have a poem about this from the stuff you're working with on? Uh... Let's see. Let's rip it off. Oh, you know what? There's, well, there's, that's the anger part. I guess that works. Okay, let's do this one. Any of your poetry is just perfectly fine. <laughs> if it's a story, is that okay? Yeah. Okay. Any of your work, I should say. Um, in sixth grade, my mother gave my brother and I an ultimatum. Stay in homeschool or venture out into a new field and see if we could grow in public school. I was content with my once-a-week interactions with our community group for Park Day and my self-driven pot of learning but my brother wanted more. He was going into high school and he wanted the typical high school experience. The girls going to prom, the girls going to football games on Friday nights, the girls, etc. But my mother told us that it was all or nothing. Either everybody leaves or everyone stays, though she denies saying this now that we're adults. So my brother, in the same way he convinced me to give him all of my Legos one week after getting them for Christmas, had a talk with me over the summer. By fall, we were both entering public school. By now we had lost the house and we were living in Rubido up the hill from where the freeway interchanged and you can see the dinosaur park in the distance. There was nothing on this side of town but dirt and mountains, which are just large piles of dirt I discovered. It was most known for the mountain that someone built a giant white letter C on the side of. I always wondered what it stood for, California, Chino, captive. 
About a mile up the road sat Sunny Slope Elementary School. The concrete campus was built on a sprawling hill so the row of temporary buildings sat above the playground and cafeteria. I don't remember seeing color before Sunny Slope. My mom says that my parents intentionally bought their last house with the United Nations for neighbors. All of the various shades of kids played freely together so well that we never stopped to compare skin. But at Sunny Slope, there was only one student who baked in the afternoon song as, sun as long as me. Her name was Shakola, like Shakola. As you can imagine, she was made fun of every day. They called her Shastakola. They asked her if they could drink, spill, or pour her out. I knew how she felt. They targeted me for all kinds of reasons. My legs sprouted faster than the rest of my body. My hair was a tumbleweed of angst. Not to mention, I tried to be quiet, but fell short out of utter boredom most days. They would speak around us in Spanish so thick that they exaggerated it had to be about us. They would point and laugh themselves to tears. Shakola and I clung to each other for pure survival. I tried to look out for her until the day her mother withdrew her. I still don't know what the final straw was, but I have a suspicion. And then all the light shone on me. It was like the clouds parted and God recommended my name to the ensuing vines. They came for me like an all-consuming thrush and recess was the worst of it. I could play tetherball and they would surround me screaming and yelling as to throw my, me off my game. In class, they would cough insults under their breath every time I raised my hand to, to answer, which was often. Coming from homeschool, I was bored. I was so tired of students taking days to grasp what I understood in a mastery of hours. I felt like I was being smothered. They were like weaving a mat above me and planned to hold it down over my mouth until I could no longer breathe. But even weeds bloom a bud to try to convince you they belong. Across the room, Little Miss Flowers burst forth lily pale and just as delicate. She was a one of a handful of poor white students who found her way into this school. Despite her family's poverty, she still carried so much privilege. Like a hummingbird chose her first, and as soon as her petals truly opened, she would be rid of us. She sat there with her back to me and always seemed to be focused on her work. We rarely had any interactions until the day she asked me to play her at handball at recess. No one ever seemed to notice me to invite me to anything. I was just excited to avoid my daily rumbles behind the trees that line the blacktop. It was like tradition. At recess, a group of kids would line up at the base of the blacktop where the white line marked the foul line. Before us stood a large wooden wall, perfect for taking and receiving the pummeling of that red rubber ball. I flourished here. It was me versus the wall and very little mattered. I had already weeded out dozens of other students who tried to step up to my garden, but she dared challenge me. I was excited to show her who belonged here and who didn't. I let her serve out of pity. I whacked my fist into the ball and launched it back against the grain. Another student of less significance took their turn, but I only remember Little Miss Flowers. She bunting the ball just soft enough to make me have to charge the wall and almost lose my balance. She with barely enough oomph to get the ball up. Out. Student was done. She serves. I return. Out. The next weed is plucked and she and I are left to finish each other off. I serve, she returns, I race to the wall, the ball hits, the crack and the base of the wall as low as possible, and they yell that I am out. I can't believe it, in my own yard? I begin to back away from the wall. Just then I hear little Miss Flowers, thorns and all say, get off the court, you little nigger girl. When I came to, her neck was between my hands. I was vehemently shaking her like a bouquet of love-me-nots. Her face was darkening to violet and her hair was a dissension of deceitful petals. I shook until all the, all the life all but loosed her. I heard myself saying, are you planning on killing her? And in a gasp, I dropped her to the ground. The crowd that had gathered around us to watch 
me throw the bouquet and no longer wanted to catch my hands. I stepped over her, refused to make my way back to the classroom. The bell had rung. Right? Um, the story kind of goes on to her accusing me of calling her bitch in the principal's office. And the conversation completely shifts to the principal uh, just wanting to talk about how I called her a bitch, right? Fully, fully understands her and fully ignores the fact that she called me nigger in front of all these kids. And I remember that being one of the first times that I realized that there was a different struggle for black women and for other women, right? That that the word bitch was more offensive than the word nigger. And that for me, I think sums up, I think what black womanness looks like, right? It's It's these layers of saying, I'm already oppressed as a woman and I'm already oppressed as a black person, but oh, to be oppressed as a black woman, right? Is to take both things, um, to take both challenges, to take both filters and to have the largest struggle. Um, like, and so, yeah, that's that's the story. Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm like, that's the story. Okay, this way of writing where you just kind of all all noise kind of goes out off and just zip, you zip in when you you drop in whoa i can't imagine yeah i mean and that was from coming from homeschool so you know up until then the last thing i was experiencing right was was racism and i had to kind of come to um understand what it looked like identify it and then understand why it was happening right even at a basic level i don't think any of us really understand why besides hate right like that's not really a reason um and it's things that i see my daughter even struggling with now where you know she'll say things like i really wish i had pretty hair i wish i had hair like elsa and i'm like sweetie there's other pretty hair right elsa's hair is pretty and also right like shuri's hair in black panther is also pretty right like you know like let me show you another princess and why she's pretty too and um i think my mother tried to do that with me, you know, but the the bubble of homeschool did a lot for protecting me from a lot of it. And I think when that was broken, I had to come into the world that my daughter lives in now, right? Like I had to be fully aware and responsive. And did I always respond in the right way? No, I shouldn't have choked the little girl, right? But for me, I didn't, I, I don't even remember it. I just remember being on top of her, right? Like I, I, there was no time between hearing the word nigger and feeling her neck in my arm, my hands. There, there was no time. It was just the next breath, right? Um, that doesn't make it okay. Violence is never okay. But I think when we're not, when we have to, at such a young age, understand such hatred, it makes it difficult to have maturity in it, right? Because maturity takes time, and racism doesn't. And I think that that's a really a point we should take is that, you know, the Ku Klux Klan, when they first came, were teaching their children, were dressing their children, right? Like we're from, from inception, teaching them how to hate and that those people have grown into be adults and have had children that they've taught how to hate in a lot of times. And in response, we have had children that we've had to teach how to survive that hate from inception, you know? I was like, it's like super heavy conversation. I'm sorry. Like flowers and unicorns, glitter. You don't need to go there. You don't need to go there. Glitter. <laughs> I know, right? No, glitter cannons. I mean, thanks for the, you know, all of it. Um, but I, but isn't that the point? Like, I think 
I think we really need to be uncomfortable more. Yeah. I know yeah. I certainly do. I, I you know, I, I, people I work with certainly do. You know, how often do we, there's this one scenario where I, I, I this guy, Stephen Hayes, told a story years ago, he created this therapy called ACT, Acceptance and Commitment Therapy. Mm. And he had he'd said, you know, when your kid comes to the side of your bed and says, I'm scared, you don't slap him across the face. Right. And how often do we do that to ourselves when those uncomfortable feelings like hurt and jealousy and, you know, we are dismissive to those. And then those around us are dismissive to those. Yeah. And all the while we're suffering the burden of not even connecting and acknowledging what we're feeling in the first place. Oh, yeah. And uh, and that's really tough, for, I think, for human beings. because We just don't have a lot of experience of people saying, mm. I understand. Well, I think we also need to teach kids at an early level of how to like be self-reflective, you know, so things and by no means am I the perfect parent because I mess up a lot. But, Me neither. you know, things with with my daughter, she'll say, like, I, I'm just crying. And I'm like, OK, what's causing you to cry? Oh, no, no, right. Like, and I'm like, well, what what was the last time you remember being happy? What happened between that time and the feeling that you're having right now? Do you think that had something to contribute to why you're sad? Right? Is this a sadness that caused was caused by something, or do you just think that you need to cry? Because sometimes we just need to cry, right? Like, and it's okay if you just need a minute to get it together. And sometimes she'll say like, I just need a minute, and I'm like, okay, take a minute, and then she'll be like, I'm feeling a lot better now. My tears have dried up, and I'm okay. And I'm like, okay, cool. You let me know if there's anything I can do for making you feel like you felt before, because I ain't ever want to do anything that makes you feel like whatever that was, whatever you want to call it, right? Like that feeling. It's not one that I ever want you to feel intentionally. So if I do, you got to say, mom, my feelings are hurt. Mom, I don't, you know, I didn't like that you did that. And I'm going to say I'm sorry because whether or not I intended to do it or not, I never want to make you feel that way, right? Like whether or not it was the truth and I told you the truth or not, I could have done it in a way that didn't make you feel that. Mm -hmm. And that's important for mom to think. And so I apologize often, you know, to my kids, which I had a woman who heard me apologizing to my daughter in like a dressing room. She came out and she's like, did you just apologize to her? And I was like, I did. And she was like, oh my gosh, you are an amazing mom. And I was like, no, I just, I'm a human. I can own that even with my kids, I'm not perfect. And I can say, I'm sorry. And that doesn't take away my authority. It just says, I'm wise enough to say that I'm gonna make mistakes. I'm not gonna get everything right. Mm -hmm. And apologies are necessary and we make up, you know? And if you're like, I don't forgive you right now, cool. You need a minute to forgive me. That's reasonable because I really hurt your feelings. And it's fine if you need to take some time. And so I think the more we talk to our kids like that, the more we give them space to like help them metacognitively process like through why am I feeling the way that I'm feeling? What caused me to feel this? You know, um, I think that we we make better adults, right? Like we make more receptive adults. We make more empathetic adults. We make, you know, we're adults can see the the things that they do and how they really ripple out and affect other people. And then we make better decisions, right? Even at like a very civilian level, we start to make better decisions because we've been more empathetic our whole lives and we've seen the repercussions of our actions. So, I mean, I might be changing two kids, but my hope is that a lot of people change one or two kids and then maybe we can be a lot better. You know, maybe our future will be a better place. I hear you. Yeah. Well, we got to start... Yeah closing down a little bit and I'm wondering I have a, a thought here I mean, we can go into this or we can go into anything that you've got um, my curiosity is w w 
if we could use this format to say, what, what do you wish people would ask, would bring up, would talk about around the issue of race and gender yeah. that they don't like yeah. any stories or anything come to mind about that? Cause I think that's just so important and I want to take the opportunity. Yeah. I think, um, we often think of the opposite of racism being colorblindness. Mm-hmm. And that's a lie. Mm-hmm. Right? The same way that the opposite of love is not hate, it's apathy. Mm-hmm. I think for us, we have to start to be willing to celebrate the differences between people instead of pretending like they don't exist. The beautiful thing about us is that none of us are the same. That's what makes the best part of us, right? Like, that literally is the best part of all of us is that we bring such diverse and beautiful things. And um, I think it's about not trying to give someone a seat at a table, but showing them how to build their own table and sitting there with them, right? Like those kind of things are ones that I feel like work for gender and for race is making sure that everyone has a table, that everyone's represented equally and not in some like Plessy v. Ferguson kind of way, right? Like, But like mm-hmm. a real equality and that, we're not gatekeeping, right? But we're giving opportunities to people, no matter what they look like, how they identify. Um, I think if we can grow in that direction, that's that's what we need. We need more of that. Because there is like an absolute beauty in it. And the times that I've learned the most, I've probably been the most in the weeds and uncomfortable and, you know, attending my first quinceanera, right? Like, like that was like for me, one of the highlights of my life, right? Like I had so much fun. And so I think those things, when we push out of the things that we know, we find things that we love and that that's a beautiful place. Yeah. So does it, you know, earlier when I say, okay, well, let's talk about, you know, being a black woman, you know, does that bother you when somebody asks you? That? No, See, not at all. That's the thing I want people to know is, is, that was my suspicion, you know, yeah. but when we can have conversation, like, tell me what it's like, what's your life like? Yeah. I just notice people like open up and they're ready to share themselves. Mm-hmm. And I think even noting certain differences, I think people get concerned. Am I going to, am I saying something, something wrong? Like what's going to go on? And I think the more that we can just put our curiosities out there, certainly with somebody who's willing to share, I mean, oh, yeah. you know, um, I think we'd be better off because we create deeper relationships. When, you know, it's funny because I had a coworker who was like, he was like, honestly, I didn't grow up with black people. I know I always say the wrong thing. Can I just ask you all the questions that are like not not like appropriate questions? And I was like, you can come ask me all of the inappropriate questions. And I'm not going to take it as like a slander to who you are. I'm going to take it as you honestly are ignorant and you really want to know. And he and I had some conversations where they, you know, he was like, a student used the N word in my class. Like, I did not feel comfortable but it was from one black student to another black student. How like how do I tell you that you can't use that? And I was like, you don't. How about that? And I was like, what you do is you say, when you use that word, you give permission to everyone in this class to use that word. Is that a permission you want to grant? And if it isn't, then maybe we talk about that that conversation doesn't happen here. I can't tell you what to say, but I can advise you on where to say it. And maybe this is not the best place. And he was like, oh my gosh. I, that, yeah, that's exactly. And I was like, right. But you're not going to change the way that they talk, right? Like that's a whole other conversation that you can't have and that's okay. But you can talk about like permission and what the things, what your actions give permission for. 
If you normalize it, then everyone's going to do it. And you can't be mad about that. And so I think like if we, if we have those conversations, you know, it made him a better person and more aware and, and also made his classroom safer for students. And you like, there was just a lot of benefit to being able to ask really uncomfortable questions with someone safe. And so I think it's a part of, you know, people from whatever group you identify with being open to answer those questions, you know, in a, in a way that's not judgmental, but in a way that's informative and Mm. is helpful. And I think it's also people being able to be really honest with what they're coming for and acknowledge their faults and acknowledge their not even discrepancies, but acknowledge their, um, what's the word I'm looking for? That's inequities. Maybe that's not right. either. Inadequacies. There's the word acknowledge your inadequacies uh, and say, I don't know this, but I want to know this, right? And so I think like the more we do that, the better. You know, and I have friends that I ask through these stupid questions too. So like, I'm not saying I'm an expert. <laughs> I ask dumb questions, right? Like, I'm like, I don't understand this. I don't get it. Please explain this to me. Mm-hmm. They do. And then I'm like, thank you for letting me be stupid. Right? Like, thank you for letting me be ignorant for a minute because I don't want to be that way, but I don't come built in with the knowledge, you know? Yeah, write bad poetry and ask dumb questions. Yeah, yeah. correct. Yeah. <laughs> that, like, that is a t-shirt. Write bad poetry that. and ask dumb questions. Yeah, <laughs> that's real. That's like life advice right oh, there. That's right. Well, what else? Is there anything else? So I do want to talk a little bit about the project I have coming up. Good. So in talking about like doing things that scare you and doing things that make you uncomfortable, um, I was approached by the Houston Grand Opera to write an opera, which I had no idea what that meant. <laughs> I was like, I don't want. And so um, I wrote the libretto of an opera that'll be coming out in March of 2020, along with uh, the music will be composed by Damien Sneed, who is masterful. And um, I'm really excited. We're taking spoken word and combining it with opera awesome. and turning it into this kind of understanding of the impact of Marian Anderson's life um, as being like, you know, the first one of the first black opera singers. And so that space is like brand new, right? It's it's saying that it's okay for these new collaborations and these new versions to happen. And I'm really, really just excited to see what comes from it. God, Matt. Yeah, so I'm like, so people need to like get tickets now. It's called Marion's Song. And um, the tickets I think are already available through Houston Grand Opera. But uh, I'm excited to see kind of what the conversations on the back end of that are when it comes to craft, when it comes to voice, and just like, what do people feel in that space, right? Like, what does it feel like for you? I'm I'm super excited to hear from people like what what that experience is for or feels like. And I will include links. Thank at, you. In the intro, uh, I'll I'll certainly say it in the intro, but I'll also include links on the the project Appreciate so you. people can just click right to it. Thank so you. check that out. Of course. Yeah, and if you can tag to my website, Live I Life will. Deep, I would appreciate that. I will say the website again. LiveLifeDeep.com. Good. And um, I also do workshops. I do one-on-one coaching with writers, mm-hmm. and so if you're looking for a way to plug in craft-wise. I'm always here to help if I can. Well, you've helped me. Yeah. Thank Thank you for having me. Thanks for being here. Anytime. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen. Ladies and gentlemen. Are you ready? Are you ready? Get ready, y'all. Wait.
a frenzy. The blends be all the right cred, meaning credentials. Best of both worlds when we rockin' over pearls and the instrumental. Are you ready? Time to get it lit, we got it hot like fever. Sick with the talk, pass it, your receiver. All about running the spot. And you know we got breath control, so no need to take a breather. Cardio kingpin, subjugate the dub play. And you know we can't wait to bring spins. A-star quizzes, A-plus the final. Vocals we align, we'll move it all simultaneously over joints of rock. We earn 30 years, so you can say we got three turns. Live off the board, unlike you and your chess men. We installed out in you and your yes men.